For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's returning guest is Dan Martin. Welcome to the show. Hello. We've been uh, we've been fanning about. We won't we won't go into that in terms of the podcast because now we're ready. I've took my staticky shirt off. We've got recorders aligned, which is a new one for me. But it's it's um, it's great to be in the hands of another podcast host. Um, uh, while I record a podcast with them, it's uh, always reassuring. Um, and we're going to do five great um, horror visual effects with you, Dan, because because that's your line of work, isn't it? Do you want to give a brief uh, introduction as to as to who you are? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to call you off immediately on the term visual effects. <laughs> oh my word! Have I, have I, have I uh... a faux pas? Visual effects tends to originally referred to uh, your sort of in-camera opticals, and now is really a term for like CGI and its ilk. C- CGI is a very specific uh, thing because mm-hmm. it's computer-generated imagery, whereas VFX includes CGI, but also includes compositing and cleanup and all that kind of stuff. So VFX is is normally the the optical or the or the purely visual stuff, visual effects. So what would Whereas you what, what are we doing then? Five great what? Well, I'm so some of what I'm talking about will be visual effects, but not all of them will be. Okay, um, they're just just special effects, which is the sort of the catch-all term. Okay, you see, you see, there you go. I'm glad you picked me up on it then, because I thought in my naivety that um, <laughs> that special effects was somehow the, 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 the catch-all for practical. CGI was the digital, and then VFX was the catch-all for all of them. So that was my No, v, v, VFX is the catch-all for the digital. Yeah. Um, SFX, it, it's, it's slightly confusing. Special effects, yeah. as, a, as a phrase, covers both practical and digital, but does tend to make, it does tend to evoke the practical. SFX, which is a shortening of special effects, refers to pyrotechnics, wind, rain, big rigs, that kind of stuff, uh, which are also sometimes referred to as floor effects. Then you've got special makeup effects or prosthetic effects, which cover anything that is stuck to an actor, a three-dimensional makeup that's stuck to an actor. Although special makeup effects, if you go back far enough, can also cover two-dimensional makeup effects. 
Um, then you've also got creature effects. Um, you've got gags and rigs, uh, which refers to like sort of specialist puppets that do just one task rather than like a puppet character. Like if you have a, a head crush or whatever, that's a gag. I don't know how I've managed this, Dan, but when we spoke last time, it was when you were doing your um, how how it all works or things I've done. Uh, yeah. For, uh, and I don't feel like I got it this wrong then, but I feel like I've learned something. In the, I feel like I've learned a lot in these last in these first five minutes. So I'm grateful for that. Well, yeah. So I, I to 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 go back to what I do. Yes. I'm I'm specifically uh, makeup effects, creature effects, rigs and gags, figurative okay. effects, which is sort of like bodies and that kind of stuff. Yeah. The practical end. I'm not a, I'm not a digital guy. I see. I see. There you go. <laughs> right but well you you before we start i just want to let you know that the the, the uh and I've, actually i've mentioned you're a podcast host do you want to say what podcast it is you're the host of or co-host of oh yeah yeah, yeah. i also co-host the arrow video podcast um with sam ashurst and we um yeah every couple of weeks we pick a film from the arrow archive arrow library uh talk about it and then recommend things sort of off the back of it and then just sort of chat shit about film, really. It's nice. <laughs> and what was uh, what was we're recording this on the first of July. So what was uh, what was the most recent recommendation you were happy to make? Um, the most recent one I did was a, a sort of a, a heartwarming Spanish comedy by Javier Fessa uh, called uh, Campeones Cham- Champions, which is a an amazing film and I suspect unremakeable. Although I'm sure someone might consider trying because it is a delicate subject matter and uh and Fess's fantastic uh eye I, I think maybe uniquely suitable and this is, the, is, about, that, is, that uh, hour, is that an hour release release is it oh no no this isn't this is just a film I recommended on the podcast the most recent one we recorded an episode the most recent arrow episode, uh uh film that we we talked about was white fire okay um which is an absolutely fucking crazy sort of like French Turkish actioner <laughs> mm. well i've got i mean i've got a show i mean i'm saying it's first of july while we're recording this but a show that will come out before this one hits the airwaves mm. is i spoke to Mig, uh, miguel yanso who directed jesus shows you the way to the highway which yes yeah, yeah, yeah which, which has doing. just hit uh, arrow's uh, video channel which is quite the quite the absurd and amazing movie it is pretty exciting and, and Miguel is an amazing, um, amazing guy to talk to about making films. He's a he's a man that's managed to uh, keep the play aspect to the creative part of what he's doing, and it shows, doesn't it, in that film? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, I like that. I'm, I look forward to listening to that one. So we're going to do uh, five films in the in the uh, in the spirit of of the five great that I do. I've done rom coms, rock docs. I've done Turkish re make exploitations i've i've got killer dogs in movies still to record which i'm very excited we're going to do special effects are we not we are yeah and like i've kind of deliberately shied away from some of the more obvious ones just because i wanted to sort of exploit this opportunity to recommend some stuff i mean there are definitely some that that people will have seen like I've not it's not all super obscure. You were very kind to share with me YouTube links so I could I could be I could be um I could revise before we talk about them, but so I will make those available to the listener as well so the, the audio and the visual can be married when you talk about the kind of magic of the techniques that are behind this or what, what you what thrilled you about seeing it. 
Um, but just to remind the listener um, and to let you know as well, we're going to do this on the um, on the typical uh, five minutes, and then the alarm goes and away we go to the next movie. So when my iPad does an impersonation of your dog Pig, um, <laughs> we're going to move on to. I'm going to I'm going to elbow you in the rib a bit, just playfully, and say, right, next movie. But I must say, yeah. your 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 selections, which I won't I won't give away completely, but just just because it's the first one, um, you have got that you are holding the record now, and I'm not sure it'll ever be beaten for the oldest movie in the five great series of podcasts that we're doing. <laughs> so, uh, without further ado, do you want to take us back to 1911? Uh, I, uh, I I put a typo in my notes to you. It's not 1911, it's 1914. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just <laughs> I just noticed that. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, 1914, you're still going to be holding the record for a while, I reckon. But what's the film? Uh, so the film is L'Inferno. It's the uh, it's sort of regarded as the first Italian film or feature film, and uh, yeah, uh, three directors: uh, Francesco Bertolini, Adolfo Padovan, and Giuseppe De Liguoro. Um, I've massacred that last name. I know it. Um, it's a black and white movie based on Dante's Inferno, and it uh, chronicles. Um, a, a journey through the different areas of hell. And it is, like, the whole film itself is an absolute treat uh, as far as early visual effects go. Um, there's there's puppets aplenty. There's an enormous amount of double exposure, early attempts at rear projection, all that kind of stuff. But the, um, the one that really, like, jumps out at me, and there are GIFs all over the internet, you may have seen it even if you didn't know what it was from, is, uh, is Satan consuming a damned soul. Um, in La Fano, and it's absolutely beautiful. So there's a there's a sort of a puppet version in a wide, um, where the guy playing Satan is rear projected across this huge background, uh, with a a little wig the, the the legs of a little wiggly man coming out of his mouth as he gorges himself on the on so the what, souls what's, of the damned. What's, make, what's making that trick happen? What's happening there? Well, so the, that that first trick is 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 a puppet in an actor's mouth but the, uh, the one that i the one that excites me <laughs> is the close-up when they punch into satan's face uh and he's sort of he's got his hands up the actor's been told he can't move his hands in front of his face because he's he you know it'll ruin it mm. it's very high contrast black and white which which lends them a lot of favors and they've they've double exposed the area around his mouth so they've built a mouth and then an actor leans into it and kicks his legs and they filmed that and then they reposition the camera and they shoot the uh, the actor playing Satan with a big blob of black makeup in the centre of his face so it doesn't re-expose that area of the film. And they re-expose it with uh, Satan providing the rest of the the rest of the head and the surrounding image, so it's a it's an early in camera double exposure trick, which is really sort of the grandfather of compositing. Now, I was going to say that seems like a hell of a lot of experimentation going on to achieve a visual treat for yeah, a first, absolutely. For a first I mean, movie. Well, it's it's Italy's first movie, but you got to remember that Melia over in in France was already playing around with this kind of stuff. So it yeah. is a little derivative in that respect. Mm. So Melia obviously had come in as a magician who was experimenting with cinema as a way of expanding his trick repertoire, and mm. then fell in love with the medium. And he did loads and loads of lovely double exposure gags because he knew that if you had a black background, it didn't show up on camera. So he'd put on a black body stocking. 
with just his head visible and dance around in front of a black uh, a black background with all these marks that he'd laid out or worked out. And then he'd come back on with his head in a black bag <laughs> and the rest of him visible and he'd follow the marks and the head and the body would kind of line up for some of the shot and then they'd separate and drift away and it was no one had ever seen anything like it. And so it's the same tricks that Melier had worked on that are being used so heavily in L'Inferno. But whether it's because of my love of Italian genre cinema uh, or the fact that this is horror rather than, you know, japes. Um, but yeah, the, the Lanfano one has really stuck with me. How much, how much of what's going on there is still applicable to today, you know, in terms of tricks that people might want to play today? Well, I mean, if you think about shooting in front of green screen now, it's basically the same thing, except instead of relying on the photosensitivity of the film mm. to not expose certain areas of the film, you're using a computer to remove certain areas of the film. But now when we shoot an element to drop into something else, or we shoot an actor in against a green screen because they can't be in the same place as another actor and they need to be dropped into the, into the scene later, mm. it's the same principle it's just being done in a in a digital way rather than a purely analog way yeah, it's 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 interesting that isn't it that, that, i mean i guess it's all about the trick of the eye isn't it so if all you're doing is tricking the eye then the principles remain the same don't they that's it i mean and, and imagine what a 1914 audience must have thought seeing this just like you know a italy you know, quite a religious country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they, a, it's they a, like their it's a Jesus and devil. A, de a depiction of a journey through hell. You know, only a few short years earlier. Uh, <laughs> there goes, there goes pig to tell you to stop talking. There goes pig. Uh, can I finish my bit? Yeah, go it's on. Very finish. Quick. You've started, so you've only, finished. Only a few years earlier audiences uh, were scrambling out of theatre tents because they thought the guy at the end of Great Train Robbery was going to actually be able to shoot them when he lifted his gun. So when you turn up in Italy with, with uh, you know, moving images depicting hell, I'd, I'd wager there were more than a few people who thought this was just documentary footage of hell. Yeah, you kind of you think of like films that have affected you in your life and, and it would just be amazing just to be able to transport yourself back to that, to that kind of, that, that level of innocence where... Just having some people might have gone in there and never seen a moving image. The chances are, I I I live over in late in East London, and it's it's famous for two cinema things. One of them being Alfred Hitchcock, um, but the other is Pepper's Ghost, the theatre trick. Well, but and Pepper's Ghost gets used in film as well. I mean, obviously less these days, but but there's. Uh, I remember when I was a when I was a student and we were making little horror movies. We'd occasionally pinch monsters from other movies by Pepper's ghosting them into our films. Oh. So we'd have a we'd have a monitor up to the side of the shot and we'd shoot through an angled glass and we'd have a person behind the glass react to the monster that was on the telly and they'd just marry together in camera. Right then. Let's move fast forward 50 years or so to 1963 to, to I guess, what you would call most gorehounds right of passage movie in a way, uh, 1960, yeah. 1963's Blood Feast. And in particular, you want to you wanna draw our attention to the tongue removal.
So, I mean, you know, again, like Lanfano, Bloodfeast is a kind of a, a smorgasbord of this kind of thing. Uh, it's uh, Bloodfeast is very much an ode to the make-do end of the filmmaking spectrum. <laughs> You watch you you watch those opening credits, and Herschel Gordon Lewis has put his own name down for everything. We used to joke that uh, he just he'd just fire people and say, "I'll do it, I'll do it." Um, and then I I found out that actually there was some truth to that. <laughs> just occasionally, just just take jobs. If someone let him down, he'd be like, "Oh fuck it, I'll do it." Wow. Um, yeah the um the the reason I'm so drawn, uh, the reason I want to sort of put a spotlight on the tongue removal scene from uh from blood feast is that uh the actress was cast purely because she had a mouth large enough to fit an ox tongue in oh so Herschel Gordon Lewis did his own special effects for this there was no special effects artist on the film he had a list of things he wanted to achieve whether it was the shonky mannequin leg in the bath at the beginning or mm. you know the uh the, the bit of bacon over the forehead for the scalping on the beach um but with the with the the closest he came to a sort of special effect was casting someone because they could fit their uh, this whole ox tongue in their mouth. And now, as as sort of far forwards as we've got with practical effects, we are still casting extras based on physical quirks that make them suitable for specific gags. If you look at uh, the the Omaha Beach landing from Saving Private Ryan, yeah, ev- every registered extra with an amputation in England was hired for the that scene. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, Herschel Gordon Lewis's fantastic innovation lives on. You know, to this date where, you know, we, we there's still regularly a conversation in the in the pre-production meetings about like, you know, in whether it's a zombie film or a, or or an action film with explosions, you know, would it be possible to find an actor with a missing limb to play this part? Because then we can cut the limb off on camera. And it's sort of this little vein of exploitation that's made it through into mainstream cinema. Wow, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's one thing for uh, for Mr. For Herschel to be doing it, but there's another for uh, for Shepperton to be doing it. Well, exactly. But but that's it. Like, you know, it's it's the best solution. You know, like, obviously, if, you've, if your main character's played by, a, a you know, an A-list celeb, uh, and they need to lose a hand or an arm or something like that, then, especially nowadays, VFX is going to come into play or maybe, you know, you're going to go the sort of median route of tucking the arm behind the back and giving them a false arm. Uh, but but if it's a background character, you know, someone getting blown up by a landmine in John Rambo, the the fourth Rambo film, mm. um, all those amazing Paddyfield uh, explosions are done with amputees. Um you know, it's it's all over the place. You really are showing me the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain here. <laughs> so in terms of that tongue removal, though, it was interesting watching it with, with the view that I was going to talk to you about it because it wasn't so much I was looking at where the joins were. It was like I was looking at how very practically he, he, he... It's not even like it's in the cut. He just gets the body of the actor in the way while he does the removing of it. Yeah. And then, and then leans and you back to... see the last, top. like... The, the last, like, third of the removal is he just takes the stub of this, presumably fresh. I mean, that's one thing I'm glad hasn't aged, uh, or hasn't aged well. We are getting further and further away from people asking to 
cheap out by using real meat and real animal parts on films. <laughs> so what, what you're was, saying there, though, is, is that it, it isn't completely eradicated. So have you had experience of using offal and, and butchers? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, like everyone, if you if you go back to the sort of the, the documentaries about the 80s, 80s and 90s, great practical effects stuff. There's loads of loads of stories of it. And it does still happen now, but it's it's less and less. Um and I like to think that eventually we'll get to a place where we don't have to do it at all. Do you, do you I think mean, we never we never have to do it. We no, never of have course, to do of it. course. That's not the right phrase. You, but... Just going back to the point you made with the first film about the shock the shock value of what was going on. I mean, was yeah. there any shock to Herschel's film, to people's sensibilities oh, in 63? 100%, yeah. So you've got to remember that Herschel Gordon-Lewis had was an advertising guy. He was a copywriter for advertising. Uh, and he would borrow the film kit at the weekends and he'd go out and shoot, like, fake nudist camp documentaries and, like, skin, skin flicks. <laughs> um... I know, I know Pig is hushing me, but again, if I may. No, you're, you're not. Please finish, finish, finish that thought. Um... Uh, and then, and, and he was, you know, making a pretty good living with this side hustle, making these skin flicks. And then in the early 60s, when pornography was legalised, um, he was like, well, no one's going to be interested in my tame nudie cuties anymore. So I've got to think of something else. And Bloodfeast was the answer to that. He was like, well, there aren't any really rules about violence in, like, gore in cinema. So let's just go fucking out there with it. And he... um. He, he, he really carefully skirts all of the actual legislation, so all the nudity. The, the scene in the, uh, the the flashback to the Egyptian sacrifice, all, it's all like carefully draped bits of cloth hiding breasts and stuff. Whereas obviously, you know, by the, by the 70s, it was, it was breasts and gore. But in the early days, he was so worried that they'd use the nudity as an excuse. I tell you what, I don't know what, I don't know what, I, I don't know what you thought of um, the Blood Feast remake of recent years. I was but not it, a fan. But it felt to me like a bit of a wasted opportunity. Yeah. It's it's almost like, you know, here's the grandfather of gore. You've got 21st century technology and techniques at your fingertips. Go somewhere where nobody's gone. And they didn't. They blew it. But that's the thing. I think people tend to think of Herschel as a cheap filmmaker, and he undoubtedly was. But more importantly than that, he was a massive innovator. He was pushing pushing the boundaries, and but that doesn't seem to be his legacy as much, which is a shame. I think because we can watch a clip and go ha ha, ha and laugh at it as if as if we're somehow postmodern and ironic. But but in reality, if you kind of wind the clock back. You go. People were not were not seeing. I mean, that scene when you look at it in, in out of context is a is a really really violent scene. You know, it's a woman in her underwear being attacked by a fully dressed man. It's violent, and then obviously it's it culminates with him rip, pulling a tongue out. Now, whether whether it's an ox tongue or whatever they did, it's it, that's what you're being. That's what's being dramatized. That's quite a harrowing sequence. The best in the it best is. It's a pretty intense content. Talking of intense content, and uh, and 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 I must admit this this genu this this next bit you've is is arguably the second most popular of what you've picked because the the penultimate choice is I think the one that the world knows. Um, like when I say that, I mean like my mum will know that one. But yeah. my mum won't know this one: the eye gouging flesh eaters from 1979. Which it's safe to say that growing up in the uh, in the video recording actor era. That was that was like the the um, that was Raiders that was the Raiders that was the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, an, uh, just an astonishing moment. It was, it was a moment that you'd hear people talk about at school before you ever got to see it. It's... Yeah, it's, it's just an amazing mo moment. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know it, uh, Giannetta de Rossi uh, was an Italian effects artist who was working for Lucio Fulci in 1979 on a... Like, I, I, you know what? I don't actually know whether it was, ever, it was made as a sequel to Dawn of the Dead or if it was just marketed as a sequel. I think to that Dawn was very much, I'm going to say, it's very much an Italian film industry thing, that, because obviously we know it as Zombie Flesh Eaters, not Zombie 2. But it was, it was Zombie 2 in, in a lot of Europe, wasn't it? Yeah. This amazing scene where, again, a woman, very often the uh, the victims in these things, uh, is uh, trying to keep a zombie out of a, a, uh, like a, a house and the zombie punches its way through the door, grabs her by the hair and pulls her slowly towards a, a shard of wood that's been outturned by the initial uh, punch. And then in... And you, as a, you know, as a sort of 14-year-old boy when I first saw this... I, I just expected the camera to cut away, and it never did. It's just amazing. And not only does the eye get sort of stabbed on the, on the spike, but the, the wood then snaps in the eye. And I'd, I'd actually seen a, um, seen a still of the eye that, that moment before I ever saw the film. Um, but, you know, this is pre-internet. I certainly didn't see the scene out of context. And I think I probably saw the film without that scene in it first, before I saw the uncut version Yo, well. yo you, me, you and me both, you and me both, I think. the. Um... But that was, that was, uh, that set up uh, Fulci for his horror stuff. Like, he, like, the, if you look at the amount of eyes he fucks up in The Beyond and, you know, uh, New York Ripper, but this was, this was the moment. And everyone obviously responded to it very appropriately. And so he was constantly trying to recreate that of, that of audience effect. I mean, it's, again, it's it's interesting doing this exercise with you because I'm getting to see these things just as they are, as the exercise in in, in special effects. So you're watching something that you know quite well, but but only focusing on that one scene because that's all you've got to watch in terms of talking to you about it for this for the purpose of this podcast. Then. And it's a really, really dynamic sequence, you know. As it really is. And it's one of the things that's very impressive about it and one of the things that makes it such a vast jump from 63 and Lewis is that De Rossi has done what most practical effects artists will pitch whenever a, a big gore moment, like a, like a, you know, a big set piece comes up. Um, and, and that's he's shot the same moment with two different methods and then intercut them. And that helps hide the, the tells of each. So when the when you see the splinter going into the eye, that's a puppet head. But then and 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 the snap, but then her reaction when it pulls out a little wider, that's a prosthetic that she's wearing. And yeah, by modern standards, you see the gaps a little bit. It's a little clunky maybe, but that's some first class like effects choreography. Yeah, well I mean I was I was watching that on my on my on my, you know, 2K monitor. 
And while obviously it's not coming through fully on that thing, but it, it still lasted. It still it still was effective. I think I just think the whole makeup of it, the whole, the cuts, her acting, the special effects itself. It's it's not just about the gore. It's actually the terror of it friggin' happening that it is really conveyed quite strongly. As an effects person, obviously, I don't get upset by by gore in films. But the thing that will upset me is a realistic depiction of suffering, like an actor or an actress who's able to convey mm. to me fear or pain. Um, and those things will really get under my skin far more than than just a load of blood. And do you know what I hadn't... I mean, from a scripting point of view, which I don't know whether it would be on the page or not, or whether this was his invention as the special effects artist, but but when, when, the, arm, when the zombie's trying to break in while she's trying... Oh, to- the fingers... <laughs> Well, no, not 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 like the, no, the, the fingers is the fingers is the good red herring and everything about her being safe, but but the um, it's the shards of wood flicking out, which I'd never really paid attention to before. It's like the setup of what's about to happen is is being signalled, and you're not seeing it. I mean, obviously, being aware of what happens next, you know, but but just seeing how it plays out, it is like a, a mini theatre, the way everything's getting ready for this moment. Yeah, it's it's beautifully structured. It's really really well realised. Oh, there we go. <laughs> There's Pig to tell us to shut up. This is like the World Cup of special effects, I think, this one. This was like, you know, this is Wimbledon. This is the Olympic gold. This is the chest burster from Alien 1979. Do you want to talk us through it? So, yeah, same same year as uh, as Flesh Eaters. Um, yeah, I mean, like, everyone's seen it. Uh, the chest burster coming uh, coming coming out that amazing moment, uh, and I'm presuming a lot of the audience will know the story about the fact that the the other actors in the scene didn't necessarily know quite what was going to go down. It is it is another example of real innards being used. So although the, although there's fake blood aplenty, all of the viscera that's sort of poked out by the phallic alien um, is butcher's work, and it had been on set for two or three days at this point, so it fucking stank. Oh, I bet it did. That's Jeez. that's always always a companion anecdote. Whenever you hear about people using offal on films, it's always that like you know like on uh, Day of the Dead, uh, yeah, Day of the Dead, where they unplug the fridge by accident over the Christmas break, and so. <laughs> All of the all of the innards for that big body bisection at the end were like rotten when they had to do that. So all the zombies had to have aftershave on their top lips. And, uh, yeah, so so it's real gore. But but the, actually, to be honest, the reason I chose it, aside from it being a, just an astounding effect, is that it's a very like it, it's so well known. But everyone, if you ask everyone out there who designed it, they're going to say, oh well, Color Rambaldi and H.R. Geiger because Rambaldi did the effects for the first Alien film and Geiger was the designer. Hmm. But actually, Ro- Roger Dickin did both. <laughs> on really? This. He's, he, des- he designed it, he sculpted it, and he operated it. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, uh, Geiger had done a couple of designs, one of which Bannon was a, a, a sort of an enthusiast of. And again, some of you might have seen the sort of the weird chicken 
turkey uh, chestburster prototype that was that was never realised physically. Right. Oh no, no, Dicky Dickon did do did sculpt it. I've not seen his sculpt, but Dickon did sculpt it. But um, but yeah, it looked, they were worried it was going to look funny. Um, and it, ultimately it fell to Dickin to make this thing. So, And again, like with Flesh Eaters, they do it twice. There's two different ways. You've got the one that blasts out through the chest, which was just a plaster version of it on a, on a, on like a, on an arm. Uh, and then they had a, a, a slightly more mechanical one that could, could do all the follow-up stuff. So they made two versions so that they could broaden what it what could be achieved on screen. But yeah, the thing that really stuck struck me about that is how often it's misattributed. Yes, no, I didn't realise that. Because it's I think there's a similar thing goes on around interestingly with the script as well, you know, the kind of Of course. The Walter Hill Dan O'Bannon thing. With the with the ability to watch this with just the detachment of I'm what I'm watching to see how this scene plays out and I'm only focusing on it. And and you know you'd have to be a you have to be an absolute three-year-old not be able to pay attention for the, the length of this scene. <laughs> but watch, but watching, and it's interesting because obviously it is, it is well known that the actors weren't aware of it. But if you watch, if you watch Ash Ian Holmes' character, who obviously reveals himself to be yeah. the, the reason, part of the reason why they're where, where they are, he reacts like he knows, which is kind of weird. Everyone else looks like they're lost in it, whereas his reaction is very—I mean, it is like he's a frigging AI. It's really. It's really odd watching it, knowing full well that the, the, the big the big story around it is people didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he is behaving like Ash. It's quite freaky when you watch it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's an amazing scene. Apparently, Yafet wouldn't come out of his room, like wouldn't socialise for a while after that scene. He was so upset with everyone that he uh, he'd just lock himself away. But how out of interest though? How do you think he? I mean, because. Have you have you have you ever spoke to directors about pulling the same trick on people, or have you even done it? I've I've uh, a, a smaller version I have been involved in. I did a picture a while back called In Fear, and some elements of that were semi improvised. They wanted it to be like a sort of very slightly Blair Witchy in its structure, and it's in its in the way that we shot it, and uh, they didn't want the actors to know when there was going to be an effect in a scene. So I was put in a different hotel <laughs> to the actors. So me, my, myself and the guy who played the bad guy were in one hotel and then everyone else was in another hotel. <laughs> That's amazing. Because I just I just thought, you know, because if you've gone on to all the trouble of setting something up, which is obviously meant to be sort of part of some larger choreographed moment, the idea that some people don't know it's coming and how they may or may not react... Yeah, I mean, I don't really approve of that, <laughs> to be completely honest. I mean, I think a an act, a director should have faith in their actor's ability to act. Yeah. Um, the, interestingly, I've had it the other way round, where an actor has asked not to see an effect or a makeup uh. before it's on set, and and that I I approve of more. <laughs> well, I suppose that's that's saying help me out, isn't it? That's like saying I want to. I realise that I might not be able to. In some instances, it'd be better for me to just have that little jolt, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it's like sometimes actors won't will deliberately not fraternise because their because their characters hate each other and they don't want to risk developing a camaraderie that then is, you know, undeniable on camera. Now moving moving fast forward to the twenty first century. Now we've 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 tackled nineteen fourteen. We've jumped into the swinging sixties. We've held you at the precipice of the video nasty age, and now you're going to take us into full-on technology age, I think. 
with the yeah 2003 with, with 2003's Final Destination 2 which is a belting choice and it's one I'd forgotten and I was glad to watch this bit again Yeah, well, I, I chose this one partly because it kind of, this one effect kind of blew me away when I first watched it. But also I, f I feel it brings us full circle from L'Enfano as well because, because it, it uses compositing. So it's still all practical effects. It's, well, no, not quite all. It's mostly practical effects. There's a little bit of uh, CGI in there. Right. But the VFX meshes it all together. So it's the scene where the exploding car throws a fence across a field and the spinning wire of the fence trisects one of the characters. Um, and he, you know, like a... Like he's a piece of cheese. <laughs> well, I was going to say like a like someone cut down by a samurai. He's got a moment to sort of think about what's happened before he starts to slide apart. Yeah. And the way they, the way they did the gag is um, not unlike uh, Holm in, uh, in Alien, he's... Whereas Holm is under the table and there's a false body like connected to his collarbone, so it's his real arms, mm. and and then the, he's wearing this sort of bib that turns into a false body that the alien can come through. Yeah. In this instance, the guy is wearing a green bodysuit from sort of the armpits down, but wearing a false body that comes from his collarbone forwards, and then is in three pieces. So there's the bit he's wearing, there's the middle section, um, and then there's the legs and the waist from the bottom and they, they shot all of this in front of a green screen and they had uh, a puppeteer on the left say uh, mm. operating the legs and a puppeteer on the right operating the midsection so he the actor's got a little mouthful of blood he jolts as though the fence has gone through him coughs out a little bit of blood they digitally drop one of his arms off because obviously the the, the wire would have gone through his arm as well yeah. so the arm falls first he coughs the blood arm falls then he like just slides off sideways and falls to the ground. Then one puppeteer with his rod tilts forward the middle body section, emptying out some guts and dropping that to the ground. And then the guy, the puppeteer on the other side drops the, the rest of the body to its knees and falls it forwards. And then the whole thing is composited onto a background plate and the fence flying through him is, is entirely digital, it's computer generated. So it's this l really fantastic practical effect, but it's been stitched together digitally and then it's been aided with a little bit of CGI as well. Yeah. Um, and it, and I remember watching it for the first time and just thinking, fuck me, this is like when these departments work together, that's when you can really, really smash it. Like to be able to design knowing that you can use tools from across that whole gamut, that's what's really exciting because you've got practical physical things on camera, mm. so you're not worrying about the the reality of them. There's still this tangible nature of them, but you're able to collage them together in a way that just was unheard of and yet was sort of precedented in 1914 with the double exposure techniques that they were using. So in a sense, when I'm looking at when I watch that that sequence there, and yeah, it, it, it it's all very nice set up. Two people in a car chatting away. We see the fence. We see this, and then suddenly he's isolated, and the things coming at him like a train. And then yeah. he's, he's like I say, he's garroted in different angles like a piece of cheese. 
Um, but at that point, when I'm looking at him, he's in a studio on a green screen at that point. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm, I should I should know better than this by now, but I'm, I'm so easily <laughs> fooled. But, but that's it. I think the thing is, the thing that's great fun about special effects is when you, when it works well, it's really hard to tell where reality begins and ends. So obviously you've got stuff like background replacement or, you know, taking a, a, an era illogical car out of a background of a period film or, you know, whatever. And, and those things are meant to be completely invisible. But when you're being really brazen about it like this, and yet people still can't work out where the real and the false hmm. swap, where they meet, that's what's really exciting. I mean, it makes sense now you've told me, because obviously there's just him in the shot. You know, you go from like this kind of busy area where there's lots of people around and lots of things moving, to suddenly we isolate him in a frame, don't we, more or less? Yeah. Which, which now you've told me the secrets. It's kind of like, oh right, okay, that's what that, that's that's very practical. But it doesn't. But the the illusion doesn't get diluted in the process. It still feels like everything's everything's within about ten yards of each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 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 a really yeah really solid uh, effect to be able to digitally remove part of him and have him transition off to this other actor so it really is yeah it's just an extension it's a it's a sort of a combination of the stuff from the from alien and from l'enfano <laughs> yeah i think it's one of the it, it, one of the wrong turn franchise sort of copies whatever this does but doesn't do it so well because it's it just is a cgi slicing up of a body so the kind of the illusion yeah, but that's it isn't there well, but but and that's the problem. When you do it entirely digitally, you're relying on the one place that via, that CGI often falls down, which is physics. If the the thing that works so well about doing all the the practical elements that are done in Final Destination mm. Two practically is that the the guy falling is the physics are right because he's genuinely falling. Yeah, the yeah, guts yeah. slipping out of the body, they fall at the right speed and they move over each other in the right way because it's real. The only thing that's not real is that he wasn't in front of that field. It's a real field, mm. but they just put him in front of it. Um, the arm dropping is a manipulation and the fence is CGI. Um, and I think the fence doesn't is, is the so one just, weak just, link. It's the one I know, thing that I know, doesn't I know quite hold Pigs, up. I know Pigs told us to shut up, but we'll, we'll just keep going for a second longer. Um, just to, for that, because the way you described it, there's a real symphony of activity going on. So in terms of the people that got to do that job on Final Destination 2, are they yeah. coming in to do the whole film or are they saying, I can do, uh, or are people coming in and saying, I can do that thing that you want on that death, I can do that thing on that on that death? Or is, is, is that... Because so there's a huge job I there, can't, isn't there? I can't speak with specific authority about Final Destination 2. I did actually reach out to Bonnie Canner, who was the VFX executive on it, uh, to ask her about who had the idea. Was it scripted? Was it like a cool death that they had like a question mark on in the script and they asked the effects team to come up with a death? Was it, you know, was it a mix of those two? So Bill Terezekis did the, was the makeup effects designer and Bonnie Canner was the VFX executive producer. So either they or one of the people they were smart enough to hire <laughs> came, came up with it. I'm assuming it was something of a group effort because it's such a hybrid effect that it, it couldn't exist from just one of those departments. But, but nobody's going to hold you to this, but just in terms of in terms of time it would take to achieve that special effect, what, what would you estimate the production time that would have taken? Okay, so 
assuming the long version, they get yeah. the actor into life cast him, they make a body from him, they section it together, they make the puppets. That's probably going to take you, unless they're, you know, unless the pedals to the metal because it's a last minute edition or, you know, whatever, then that was that probably happened over the space of about a month. Um, then the actual shoot itself was probably done in a day. And then the VFX, you know, slapping it all together, putting the background in, digitally rendering the movement of the fence, adding the drop of the arm, probably a week, week or so of post, maybe a little bit longer. I mean, maybe less. Maybe they had to do it in a hurry. But but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that that all-in had taken about five weeks. That is that is quite that's quite an undertaking, isn't it, for, for what is a small sequence of film and you can see you know just just thinking out thinking out loud as as i as you as you said as, you, as you're saying it to me like you can see why a lot of films will just will skimp on it because it's a lot of body time isn't it and there's a lot of yeah but that's but why would you skimp on that like the the final destination movies that's their usp that's what people are turning up for is 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 exciting and inventive deaths sorry i'm not criticizing you i'm criticizing the people who make that decision like it you know that is why people go and see those films. So to not do that doesn't make any sense. If you can't afford to do it practically, if you can't afford to do it in a, a cool way, then I, I'm not sure it's worth doing. Yeah, and no, I must admit, I've watched, I've been watching a few kind of Spanish genre films, a more kind of, more kind of, more more more. Uh, what do you call it? More realist than than supernatural, and yeah. I've noticed a lot of times now they'll, they'll have their big, violent, bloody, you know, like you know, like, like in Kill List with the um, with the hammer scene and stuff, a real sort yep. of bludgeoning, bloody moment. But a lot of the other violence is off camera, and it's just a kind of, it's a blow, it's a dead person on the floor covered in blood. You know, there's no because because they can't afford to do it, so there's no point doing it badly. You might as well just move yeah. on and, and get on with it. So yeah, that's it. Don't turn it into something that's uncomfortable because people are imagining the worst rather than showing it and disappointing people. Because we're talking during um COVID times and obviously making practical effects is a very is a very physical procedure in many senses. You talked about making body casts and stuff. How how is how is your industry currently talking about I mean I've just I've just we we delayed this for a week or so because I was doing uh I was attending Virtual Can, and at Virtual Can, they talked a lot about the productions and how they're changing to, to cope with COVID-19. So going down to a micro level and thinking of special and visual effects and the practical side of it, how, how, how are, you, are, you, are you able to get on any production work at the moment, or is it, is it all on hold while yeah, guidance? Or there's, there's a little bit. I've read some truly amazing scripts during lockdown. Like I've been sent some unbelievably good scripts, some of my some of my favourite writer directors have sent me pictures that they want to do when this all finishes, <laughs> and reading them, it just makes me all the more excited for this bullshit to be over. Um, that said, we have now started to do a little bit of work again. Um, we we did our first social distancing live cast the other day, which is much more impossible than it sounds. <laughs> Uh, full sort of hazmat suits, you know, facial visors, body suits, all that kind of stuff. But that was, you know, so we've done that. We're making some puppets for something at the moment. So little bits and bobs of work coming back in. The set work is going to be interesting. I've got friends who are on very, very big productions. Jurassic Park has just started back up again. Um, and it's interesting hearing how those productions are, are handling it. Um one of the actresses in the thing we're working on was going to be in the live action Little Mermaid. I mean, still is, but they're not. They've they've heavily delayed now. 
Um, yeah, that was that was a thing whole, that I, one, 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 one of the highlights of what I what kind of stuck with me because it was said about three times is that on the bigger productions they're literally hiring somebody whose job it is to go. That's not two meters. Two meters. Keep clear. They're doing that on the small jobs as well. Oh, are they really? They're getting they have, somebody they, in. They have to. Yeah. I've been doing some stuff with the union and the the enforcement of having a, a sort of a COVID uh, examiner on set, someone who has the authority to shut things down and isn't otherwise related to production because, you know, you can't ask a first AD to also be the one to shut production down if people aren't doing things properly because they've got too much of a... There's too much of a conflict of interest. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that's kind of... And I think that's... I mean, it's... It, it's Look, these are unprecedented times, aren't they? So it's like, it might Absolutely. seem unfair and, you know, oh, I, wanna, I don't mind taking the risk. It's not about individuals, is it, when it's like, when we get to this level? No. That's it. And, and like, yeah, that's the thing that constantly like upsets me about these people who are refusing to wear masks because it's like the you wearing the mask doesn't help you. Other people wearing the mask helps you. Mm. So when you refuse to wear a mask, you're being, just being a prick to other people. What have you got out there at the moment that, uh, that what's that like, kind of newest thing, new, newest sparkly thing that you've worked on that people can... Um, it's, there's not... There's not a there's not a huge amount out right now. Um, the the great, which is an Amazon uh, show, uh, has got some bits and bobs that we did in it. Um, look out for a banquet scene with a load of severed heads. <laughs> Can I draw attention then to Girl on the Third Floor and what you did to that? Oh house? yeah, 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 yeah. If, we, if we're allowed to go back that far, <laughs> well, only because <laughs> only because I watched it about six months ago. So I went. I think it was six months ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tell, 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 just, tell, just, just while I've got you on, just tell us about making a house ooze. I mean, oh wow, yeah. So the girl on the floor, third floor was fantastic fun, and actually, weirdly, it's it's a slightly slightly odd experience for it to be one of the ones that's got that much attention. Not because it doesn't merit it, hmm. but because it was a small enough production that it was really just me and Anna Chacon, who does my hair hair worker. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the rest of my team were all off doing other things at the time because it just wasn't big enough for me to run a full team on it. So it was a really, really small job. Uh, and, and as a result, I was all over everything. Like I did, normally I'll have someone running my mold shop and, you know, I'll have extra sculptors come in and do stuff for me, you know, whatever. But on this, I, I did, you know, everything except the hair work myself. Um, but it was really fun, really, really fun. There were loads of, you know, some puppet gags, a lot of makeups. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about it, really. It's on. Well, I wanted to draw attention to it, and you gave me an excuse to because it is it is a wonderful and it is a you do you do uh, you do get gooey on us. Yeah, it's a very wet film. <laughs> <laughs> we had a run. We had a run of very wet films. One thing I want to ask you though, you keep the nomenclature you keep using is you keep referring to them as gags. Is that is that like the industry way of talking about what you do? Yeah, yeah. Like it's. I mean, I think to some extent it's it's. It goes back to the thing I was saying with Melier, where they, you know, they're magic tricks. Mm. There's, there's two. Like, if you have a character in prosthetic makeup, let's say an old age makeup or something like that, yeah, then that's that's meant to be invisible. You're not meant to know what's going on, and it's you know, subtlety is the key. But when you're working in genre, when you're blowing up heads and snapping off limbs, then it's a it's a moment, and you're meant to you're meant to have the audience go like no one thinks that you've genuinely crushed an actor's head but you don't want them to you don't want them to stop and like examine it you don't want it to throw them out of the moment so it has to be within this weird place where it's realistic enough 
that they buy into it, but not so realistic that it's providing, like, uh, it's asking them questions. Got you. Like, there's there's so many, my, my father-in-law's a pathologist, and we have this conversation quite regularly, that, that there's a big difference between real real and film real. Because you can't show an audience something they're not expecting, no matter how right it is, because it'll throw them out of a moment. And one of the things about a special effect, and this is where it becomes such a, you know, fully collaborative thing, because, you know, the sound design is going to, you know, my my visual work or like rise and fall on the work of a sound designer, on the work of an editor, on the work of the cinematographer, on the work of the actors. Like, it's such a collaborative piece. Um, and... Yeah, like if an audience, you've got to get that pacing right. You've got to get the audience charging up to it and going through it or surprise them and, and rush them past it, you know. And it is, it's like it's like a magic trick. I was going to say, which is, which when, when looking at them, when, and I'll say, I'll put the links in the show notes for people to have a look. When you look at, say, Zombie Flesh Eaters, it is, it is a wonderful series of red herrings and Mr. X before it gets to the point that you're like, you're, you're so sucked in that you're with this poor woman who's who's you know about to go through some of the horrendous, and yeah. Then, and then it keeps going. Then it goes snap, and it has a real gag at the end of it, doesn't it? Which is the snapping, yeah. the snapping of the wood. Well, look, sir, I could talk to you all day and all night, and that's not good for either of us because we need to sleep. <laughs> so I'm going to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.